0: is titled, Don't Let AI Fears Ruin Christmas by Holman Jenkins Jr. Then Allison Sider and Benjamin Katz have an article, Bad Behavior on Planes Lingers After the Pandemic. Dan Sullivan wrote An Anti-Semitic Occupation of Harvard's Widener Library. Then Letty Teague has How to Become a Wine Snob in Five Exhausting Steps. And we'll follow that up with an article by Mike Kerrigan, God's Mercy and the Atari I Never Got. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first one. Don't Let AI, Artificial Intelligence, Fears Ruin Christmas. An early and influential thought experiment in the artificial intelligence doom literature is coming true. The paperclip maximizer scenario, except the world isn't filling up with superfluous unwanted paperclips. It's filling up with predictions of A.I. doom. For the same reason Hollywood doesn't make non-disaster movies in which planes aren't hijacked and cruise ships don't overturn and sink, An AI expert is condemned to invisibility who doesn't emphasize the alleged existential risk. This is why you barely hear anything about Meta's AI guru, Jan LeCun. As for a definition, ChatGPT says, journalism is the production and distribution of reports on the interaction of events, facts, ideas, and people that are the news of the day and that informs society to at least some degree. I love the last part. The paperclip maximizers push to some degree to its bare minimum, like a Big Mac serving up empty calories. Yet the press alarm about artificial intelligence serve a purpose, perhaps the only purpose press coverage can supply, by signaling to a half-attentive audience at least the magnitude of the moment. Never mind that 90% of the words are really about something else. Displaced resentment of successful young people, anti-business stereotypes, the simple click-baity pleasure of the words AI apocalypse in a headline. Whatever was behind the recent firing and rehiring of Sam Altman at the chat GPT-making company OpenAI, artificial intelligence is out of the bag globally out of the hands of any particular class of Silicon Valley nerd. It's irrelevant whether one company, OpenAI, is officially motivated by profit or by a stated credo to save humanity from the harms of artificial intelligence. Mistakes will be made, but before AI is given power to launch nuclear weapons, engineer new life forms, or manufacture paper clips to the exclusion of all other human wants, it will be tested over and over on its ability to make reliable, useful judgments on non-extinction-level questions. These include what TV show you might like, possible side effects of a new drug, how a shopper might respond to a personalized offer, how a self-driving car might react to an odd traffic situation. An electric switch must prove itself millions of times in non-critical applications before being used in a nuclear power plant. The same will be true with AI. Anyway, humanity is already doomed. We know this. It may doom itself through its own technology, according to one theory of why alien civilizations aren't evident. Humanity, so far, has survived the atom bomb, selective breeding, genetic engineering, the environmental effects of our own pollution, etc. If artificial intelligence is a threat survival, it would likely be in conjunction with one of these other threats. The interesting exception? If AI dooms us, it might do so through inducement, by offering us a kind of existence that is no longer human. This worry reportedly led to a falling out between Elon Musk and Google founder Larry Page. Artificial intelligence's most attractive potential is also its most disturbing, the potential to ward off or indefinitely delay the extinction of human memory and cultural accomplishment, if not our actual physical species. Nearly 4 billion years have elapsed since life appeared on Earth, 600 million since life became multicellular, 520 million since the first brain evolved. As far as we know, the possibility of preserving knowledge through writing has been around only 5,000 years, birthing a technical civilization. Now comes the possibility of feeding that knowledge into chat GPT to birth artificial intelligence. Humanity is on a wild ride and in some ways accelerating. So much of modern anxiety is the anxiety of not knowing when and how this ride might end. If faster than light travel is impossible, we can say one thing. The likely only chance of human survival outside our solar system, which has its own terminal date, is with the help of artificial intelligence taking our genetic material, or at least our thoughts, to new homes and cultivating them there. Even the guy in line with me last month at the DMV, who doesn't own a computer or a smartphone, making it hard to register a car, was well-versed in the risks and hopes of artificial intelligence. AI is coming and will transform society is seven words. One study finds the most read articles in the New York Times average just over a thousand words. Sometimes adding empty calories is a way to make the news stick. And now, bad behavior on planes lingers after pandemic. Many airline passengers still don't know how to behave. A passenger on a Southwest Airlines flight waiting at the gate in New Orleans last month, opened an emergency exit, climbed onto the plane's wing, and jumped to the ground, police said. An American Airlines customer service manager was hospitalized late last month after a passenger being removed from a flight in Miami punched her in the face and pushed her down, her head striking the jet bridge. Back in July, a United Airlines flight to Amsterdam was diverted when a business class flyer launched into a tirade after discovering his preferred meal wasn't available. In South Korea, a passenger opened the aircraft's emergency exit mid-flight, forcing the jet to land. In-flight disruptions that range from annoying to dangerous are still happening at worrisome levels, regulators and airlines say, more than a year after airlines dropped a contentious mask requirement, a major reason behind the surge in onboard conflict back in 2021. The Federal Aviation Administration recorded nearly 2,000 reports of such incidents so far this year, up 71% from 2019's full-year tally, though lower than 2021's, unprecedented peak of 5,973 incidents. The Transportation Security Administration said it had opened 374 investigations into passengers interfering with checkpoint screening in the 2023 fiscal year, which ended September 30th, up from 287 the previous 12 months. Airports and what happens on airplanes are kind of a microcosm of what's happening in society, said Michelle Friedman, a former Massachusetts Port Authority security executive who was involved in federally funding research on passenger disruptions. We see this violence and tendency to be angry in so many different venues. Regulators are warning that passenger unruliness poses a significant risk to flight safety either by passengers directly interfering with aircraft, by attempting to open doors, emergency exits, or accessing the cockpit, or by preventing cabin crew from performing safety duties. At minimum, incidents can delay flights, forcing planes to return to the gate or sometimes divert. When a passenger does not behave properly, it's a safety risk. Luke Tigat, acting executive director of the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, known as EASA, said in an interview Not endangering your fellow passengers is kind of the bare minimum here, United States Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg said, admonishing travelers not to mistreat airport and airline workers ahead of all the holidays. Let's say in addition to not assaulting anyone, be nice to them. Industry officials, unions, and regulators say they have no clear reason for the continuing trend. Mental health is one factor, and drugs have played a role in some events, investigators say. Back in October, Joseph Emerson, an off-duty Alaska Airlines pilot, was riding in a cockpit jump seat when he told pilots, I'm not okay and allegedly attempted to shut down the plane's engines mid-flight, according to federal and state criminal complaints. He told authorities he had taken magic mushrooms about 48 hours before the flight, that he had struggled with depression, according to court documents. An Oregon grand jury indicted Emerson this month with one count of endangering an aircraft in the first degree and 83 counts of recklessly endangering another person. He pleaded not guilty, and his lawyer said he never intended to put anyone at risk. Some attribute the increase in troublesome behavior to a higher prevalence of prescription medication that is mixed badly with the reintroduction of alcohol on flights. Others say passengers are still rusty and nervous from an extended break from flying, overwhelmed by the stresses of full planes and delays. They're certainly down significantly from the peak of COVID, which is really good to see. But there still are events that are out there happening, said David Seymour, American chief operating officer. Back on October 25th, a JetBlue passenger on a flight from Amsterdam to New York announced to a line of passengers waiting to use the toilet seats that he refused to wait he proceeded to relieve himself into a bottle at his seat before launching into a verbal assault against two cabin crew. The captain chose to divert the aircraft to Boston. Tysha Best, a union leader and cabin crew member for JetBlue Airways, said it was one of the more severe passenger incidents experienced by JetBlue workers this year. If we are more worried about an unruly customer, that means we're not worried about all the other customers on the plane, best said. They're compromising our ability to have a completely calm, a completely safe cabin. Sadoraya's Agonastu's flight from Milwaukee to Phoenix had to make an unplanned stop in Kansas City, Missouri last month to deal with a passenger disturbance. The passenger was agitated almost from the outset, Aganastu said, and flight attendants seemed rattled as she became more verbally aggressive. We were all getting the impression she was very out of touch with reality. Some kind of mental break, Aganastu said. In Europe, airlines and airports are rolling out new practices to try to limit the risk of unruly behavior during the flight. A handful of airports are providing smokers zones so that travelers can smoke before boarding and not on the aircraft, according to ESA's head of safety promotion, John Franklin. In the United States, passengers who act out on planes can now face stiffer penalties as the FAA and Justice Department have sought to crack down on misbehavior. FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker said that the agency has a zero-tolerance approach towards such cases. Andrew Thomas, an associate professor of marketing and international business at the University of Akron, has tracked the problem of air rage for decades. The sharp decline in incidents since the post-pandemic peak is a sign that stronger enforcement works, he said you're still going to get the outliers. You're going to get the drunks, the drugs, entitled, just the mentally ill. I think you'll still always have that. That's just the curse of air travel, he said. And now Dan Sullivan's an anti-Semitic occupation of Harvard's Widener Library. I was in Boston recently for the Army-Navy game. The day after the game, Five days after Harvard President Claudine's gay disastrous testimony before Congress, I decided to walk the campus to reminisce about my time at Harvard, where I earned my undergraduate degree in 1987, and reflect about what has gone wrong at this once great university. I visited places that held significance to me while I was there. St. Paul's Catholic Church, my freshman dorm, and of course, Widener Library, a monument to learning, study, and contemplation that sits like a temple in the middle of Harvard Yard. As I did during my undergraduate years, I spent several minutes staring up at the powerful mural by John Singer Sargent, Death and Victory. It's one of two Sargent paintings memorializing the men of Harvard who sacrificed their lives for our country in World War I. I've thought about the painting often throughout the years, including when I made the decision to join the Marine Corps. When I walked upstairs to the famous Widener reading room, I couldn't believe my eyes. Nearly every student in the packed room was wearing a kaffiyeh. Flyers attached to their individual laptops as well as affixed to some of the lamps in the reading room read, no normalcy during genocide, justice for Palestine a young woman handed the flyers to all who entered. A large banner spread across one end of the room stated in blazing blood-red letters, Stop the Genocide in Gaza. Curious about what was going on, I was soon in a cordial discussion with two of the organizers of this anti-Israel protest inside one of the world's great libraries, not outside in Harvard Yard, where such protests belong. They told me they were from Saudi Arabia and the West Bank. I told them I was a United States senator who had recently returned from a bipartisan Senate trip to Israel, Egypt, and Saudi Arabia. I mentioned the meetings I had. I expressed my condolences when they told me their relatives had been killed by Israeli military action in Gaza. One then asked whether I supported a ceasefire in Gaza. I said I didn't, because I strongly believed Israel had the right to defend itself and to destroy Hamas given the horrendous attacks it perpetuated against Israeli citizens on October 7th. Their tone immediately changed. You're a murderer, one said. You support genocide, said the other. Excuse me, what did you say? I asked in disbelief. They repeated their outrageous charges. I tried to debate them, noting the Israel Defense Forces don't target civilians and that the only group attempting to carry out genocide is Hamas. But civil debate with these women was pointless. As I was leaving Widener Library, they pulled out their iPhones and continued taunting, do you support genocide? Do you support genocide? The Harvard-Palestine Solidarity Committee posted some of this exchange on Instagram. As a United States Senator who has been through two election campaigns, I've had plenty of iPhones aggressively shoved in my face by members of radical groups. Nevertheless, I was shocked and again ashamed of my alma mater. All of this, the anti-Israel protests, the big banner, the flyers, the iPhones, the taunting questions took place inside the Widener Library a revered place of quiet study for tens of thousands of Harvard students and alumni. My thoughts then turned to Harvard undergrad. Imagine if you were an 18-year-old Jewish or Israeli student, or even a pro-Israel Catholic like me, and you wanted to study for your chemistry final in the Weiner reading room on a Sunday morning. Imagine being confronted by this protest, obviously condoned by Harvard's leadership and commandeered by the Palestine Solidarity Committee, the group behind the notorious statement that holds the Israeli regime entirely responsible for all unfolding violence in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th attack. Would you feel welcome in Harvard's most famous library? Would you feel rattled, intimidated, and harassed by the anti-Israel banner screaming, Stop the Genocide in Gaza? As Jason Riley has written, if accusing Israel of genocide isn't defamation of Jewish people, I don't know what is. If you were that 18-year-old student, would you believe the vacuous statement recently put out by the Harvard Corporation after it decided not to fire Ms. Gay that disruptions of the classroom experience will not be tolerated? If students were handing out flyers and hanging large banners in the Widener Library reading room denouncing, say, affirmative action or NCAA rules allowing men to compete in women's swim meets, Harvard leaders would shut them down in a minute. But an anti-Israel protest by an anti-Semitic group commandeering the entire Widener reading room? No problem. Is that what Ms. Gay meant when she testified that it depends on the context? Not all university leadership is so craven, morally bankrupt, and afraid of the most vocal, radical sex of their own student bodies. I serve on the Board of Visitors for the United States Naval Academy, which is the number one public university in America. The contrast couldn't be starker between the service academies and the Ivy League on issues like civil discourse, so-called safe spaces, trigger warnings, American history, and our unique And yet, yes, exceptional place in the world. America's so-called elite universities used to be a positive source of our nation's power, strength, and influence. No longer. I believe over the past several weeks a bipartisan consensus has emerged. It is time for Congress to save these important and once respected institutions from themselves and their weak leaders who have lost their moral compasses. I intend to work with my colleagues in the Senate to do so. And now, Letty Teagues, how to become a wine snob in five exhausting steps. Whenever wine is a topic of conversation, I've noticed that anyone who talks a bit too much about his or her favorite beverage risks being labeled a wine snob. This is unfair, not to mention inaccurate it takes real time and dedication to become a true wine snob. And as a confessed occasional snob, I certainly should know. There are rules to be followed and attitudes to adopt if one wishes to achieve full-on snob status and the accompanying capacity to impress and intimidate fellow drinkers in equal measures. Here's my shortcut guide to achieving superstar snobbery Or recognizing a snob in your midst. Talk about your wine journey. A wine snob must start somewhere. Most seem to start by drinking prestigious bottles of Napa Valley Cabernet Sauvignon. After a respectable stretch of time drinking and talking about Napa Caps and how much they cost, a would-be snob often progresses to the wines of Bordeaux preferably big names such as Chateau Lafite Rothschild, Chateau Latour and Chateau Montan Rothschild although certain second growths such as Chateau Cos de are acceptable too the wines were ranked according to the 1855 Bordeaux classification a list of elite chateaux created at the command of Napoleon III which to this day makes clear to many wine drinkers which Bordeaux are the best. While snobs will agree there are worthy wines made in California and Italy's Piedmont region, and maybe, just maybe, a few other places in the world, the world's wine snobs wine region with the greatest snob appeal is Burgundy. Red Burgundy is noticeably subtle, nuanced, and variable. The region's primary red wine grape is, after all, the delicate, ever-so-finickety Pinot Noir, and therefore more complicated to produce and to understand. Because Burgundy's wines are ranked according to Vineyard, Grand Cru, and Premier Cru, a real snob must know which individual Burgundy domains make the best Grand Grand Cru wines. Not all producers of Grand Cruz are equal. And finally, Burgundy's very greatest wines are much rarer than even Bordeaux's best wines, produced in much smaller quantities and often much more expensive as well. Wine snobs will never fail to drive this point home. Espouse a wine philosophy. Wine snobs must formulate not just reasons but entire philosophies regarding why they drink the wines they do. They must also be compelled to share these philosophies with other drinkers, regardless of whether the latter have the least bit of interest. Snobs must champion the highly specific viticultural practices of vintners as high-minded as themselves. That means snobs may drink only wines made via sustainable or organic or biodynamic vine- vineyard practices, and preferably all three, though a SMOB may or may not actually know what these terms mean. For the record, a winery identified as biodynamic or organic must follow defined protocols, while a winery calling itself sustainable can qualify for this distinction under a wide range of conditions. Wine snobs also patronize restaurants where sommeliers possess wine philosophies. A wine director who simply chooses wines that will complement the cuisine or contribute to the restaurant's bottom line will not do. Rather, a wine snob looks for somms who curate wines onto the list because their producers have philosophies with which they agree. Snobs love the word curate and employ it as often as possible develop an intense interest in glassware. For an ordinary drinker, a wine glass is just a way of getting wine from bottle to mouth. For a wine snob, choosing the right wine glass is paramount. A wine will be rendered undrinkable if poured into a glass that isn't particularly calibrated to flatter that particular wine or grape. A snob must invest in different glasses for white wine and red wine. Burgundy and Bordeaux, and perhaps even separate glasses for individual grapes, too. A snob must also and always eschew champagne flutes, which are purported to emphasize the bubble, not the wine. Champagne is first and foremost a wine, a wine snob might declare, as if the bubbles are a mere afterthought. A burgundy glass is the best glass for champagne if you are keeping score. Additional points to snobs who bring their own stemware to restaurants. Poo-poo popular wines. If a wine is a huge commercial success, findable in grocery stores or in wine shops across the United States, a true wine snob is categorically obliged to despise it and, if at all possible, describe it as industrial, perhaps the ugliest slur in wine snob parlance. New England Sauvignon Blanc is a particular popu- popular target of scathing disdain, with sainte a close second. There is entirely too much of the former. It's the largest production wine in all of New Zealand and sold in grocery stores, after all. sainte meanwhile, altogether too popular, only shows up in restaurants where it has failed to create it entirely off the list buy wine only in magnums. A regular 750 milliliter wine bottle is for regular wine drinkers who don't have the time or knowledge to allow their wines to mature at the proper rate. Wine snobs know that wine in a magnum, the equivalent of two 750 milliliter bottles, ages much more slowly and gracefully than wine in standard sized bottles. They have the patience and dedicated wine storage to wait until their magnum of wine is ready to drink. They also have plenty of fellow snob friends who expect a magnum to be presented when the wine is deemed ready at last to pull from the cellar. As you can tell from these five steps, it's not easy or simple or for that matter cheap to achieve wine snob status. For example, I can't afford to drink Grand Cru Burgundy and that failure has really held me back. But true wine snobs are nothing if not resourceful. I will find some other wine to be snobbish about, preferably something truly obscure. Swiss Pinot perhaps. And now Mike Kerrigan's God's Mercy and the Atari I Never Got. Heavy is the heart weighed down with memories of the one that got away, especially around Christmas. My heart was once so encumbered, not by a fast flame, but by Atari 2600 home video game console. It was early December 1981, and everyone I knew seemed to be playing Space Invaders. My elder sister Brig, 12, younger brother Jack, 8, and I, 10, had pestered our parents for it all year. We'd heard long and nothing but such disheartening resorts as Atari will rot your brain. Yet Mom had been listening to more Judy Collins and it perhaps mellowed. One Saturday about two weeks before Christmas, I rooted around the trunk of her car, pretending to look for my soccer cleats. There, under a blanket, was the Atari box. I showed Brig and Jack so they could confirm I wasn't hallucinating. I don't think we were Ever were so well behaved as during that advent. We didn't want to jeopardize the heaven-set present coming our way. We cleaned the dinner table without being told, asked to be excused before leaving, the works. When Christmas arrived, we tore through our gifts like a trio of sugar-addled havler monkeys. It was down to one large box which we opened together and there it wasn't. Again, we'd been goose-egged by our mother. Even worse, we had no remedy, for our shared knowledge of the console was forbidden fruit of an unlawful search. Eventually, I spoke. Mom, I began, Tlee, what happened to the Atari 2600? She looked hard at me. How did you know about that? I confessed I'd snooped. Until then, she didn't know any of her children knew. As a research scientist and Roman Catholic lover of truth, she gave it to me right between the eyes. I changed my mind. We never got an Atari. I played video games at friends' houses well past satiety. Yet in hindsight, I would have been better off letting her know what I'd done. My mother couldn't show her three kids mercy because she didn't know we needed it she almost certainly wouldn't have returned the console had she known we'd seen it. But mercy is more accounting than magic. It surpasses justice but doesn't ignore it. Justice requires a debt to be confessed before it can be forgiven. This is because the one who shows mercy takes on the obligation and therefore must know it. Someone always pays. Mercy is absolution and beyond the bounds of justice, not mystical satisfaction in replacement of it. You can't receive what you haven't sought. What's true for material debts is true for spiritual ones. Merciful love behind all merit and behind and measure is what Jesus' incarnation made eternally possible. I see Christmas now for what it is, the Lord's entering time in an act of perfect and unfathomable love. If contribution, the price of human mercy, is worth the cost, how much more precisely so when divine mercy is on offer? My mother gave me an inestimable Christmas present, a deeper understanding of God's love in the non-gift of 1981. It simply took me years to understand. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.